Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. podcast where we combine a little true crime with some discussion about healthcare and nursing issues and then just see what happens. Before we get into our stories, I want to introduce our guest host for this week, Kelly Tuttle. She's a nurse practitioner and survivor of a traumatic brain injury. She's also an author of the book After the Crash. You guys probably are going, this sounds familiar because she's already been on the show once before. So this is uh, the second time. Welcome back, Kelly. Thank you. I'm so glad to be back, Tina. It's good to have you. I thought we had so much fun the first time around that maybe come back and we'll do it again. And you were like, yeah, I'd love to. So I always love it having having a, you know, people that come back and you kind of get into sort of a flow and, you know, it's kind of fun. So for this week's episode, we're going to be talking about a medical examiner, which is not a doctor that gets, you know, it's going to get a lot of attention in in terms of them of like malpractice or them, you know, not, not doing their job well, or even maybe even doing something illegal, because what motivation would, would they usually have? But in this particular case, you'll understand as we get into it, why it, it particularly, and, and, and I guess uh, the more you think about it, it probably is somebody you would want to be looking pretty closely at, you know, if they're involved in some sort of a crime or or something happened like around them, because they are the ones that look for those things. So if someone dies around them, if I were an investigator, I guess I would be going, hmm, this person would know how to manipulate information. I don't know. What do you think, Kelly? Yes, for sure. And I think that there is also kind of like a respect for doctors in healthcare that you just kind of want to think that they're all good guys and, you know, would never be involved in something like this. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. 
Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN-prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited, and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more, and of course, we'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. This is the story of Dr. William Sybers, and I think that's how you say his name. It's spelled S-Y-B-E-R-S, so that's how I'm going to say it. Friends called him Bill, as a lot, of, a lot of people name William. So he was born in 1932 in Tony, Wisconsin. So at, at the age of 16, he joined the Merchant Marines and then later completed his high school education in 1950. At 16 years old, to join the Merchant Marines. I can't imagine my 16-year-old doing that. One of my 16-year-old, one of my boys when they were 16. I had a patient once that was one of these young people that joined the military. And I, and I think that they have like a special group. He had a, you know, a, a vet's hat that said it the part of group that he belonged to. And it's a group of young men age 14 to, to 16 that, yeah, lied about their age in order to become part of the military. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So crazy. So he graduated from high school in 1950. He pursued a Bachelor of Science in Geology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and then served as a naval aviator and after enlisting in the Navy. Then after the Navy, he studied medicine at Marquette University and graduated with honors. So during this period, as he was getting his medical degree, he married a woman by the name of Kay, and they began to have a family together. Dr. Cybers undertook his internship in pathology at the University of Rochester, New York, and completed his residency at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So pretty prestigious academic background. He initiated his pathology practice in Fort Dodge, Iowa, before relocating to Panama City, Florida. Not a bad place to set up shop to work in Panama City, Florida. (laughs) Sounds like pretty good life to me. So there he practiced both clinical and forensic pathology until 1993. Kelly, would you be able to explain just real briefly what a pathologist does? A pathologist is a physician who your primary care doctor can send body fluids and tissues too, such as a biopsy, and then they can make a diagnosis on those samples to decide what the disease process going on and then help your primary care provider with identifying the medical problem. Yeah, it seems like a really interesting field to go into, especially for people maybe that kind of like more behind the scenes not everyone likes interacting with with people and dealing you know dealing directly directly with patients so it seems like this would be a field some people might want to go into that don't want to have that face-to-face interaction and they would just prefer to have the more sciencey part of it you know behind the scenes he established bay pathology and held the position of medical examiner for the 14th circuit from 1982 to 1992 and so a pathologist and a medical examiner are not, not exactly the same thing. They're, they, they, they do different things, but they're closely tied together because a medical examiner who is a pathologist is going to know tissues, and it just seems like the two would kind of go 
go hand in hand. He studied forensic pathology, but then also was a medical examiner or coroner. And so he kind of had, you know, both of those areas, I guess, of expertise. He was a notable member of the College of American Pathologists and was honored with special recognition by the institution. Definitely someone who was accomplished and successful in his career. On May the 30th in 1991 in Panama Beach, Florida, a seemingly routine call for help transformed into an investigative odyssey that would last nearly a decade. So Kay Cybers, as we said, that's his wife, was discovered unresponsive by her daughter in their family home. Emergency services and police were swiftly on the scene, but the tragedy was confirmed. Kay was declared dead and believed to have died from a heart attack. So Dr. Cybers was not there at the time, and he was contacted about his wife's sudden death. So upon arrival, he was grief-stricken, and he requested her body to be sent directly to a funeral home, which sort of bypassed the standard procedure of an autopsy. So there, this was sort of a, a you know, suspicious activity, but then an anonymous tip alerted the police about Dr. Cyber's seemingly odd behavior. So upon interrogation, he defended his decisions, attributing them to the distress he was under upon learning of his wife's unexpected death. But remember, he was a medical examiner. And so I, I think the investigators were just thinking, I understand you being upset, distraught, completely just not even thinking clearly. But even in that state, it's hard to imagine that an experienced medical examiner would not have known that she would have needed to go for an autopsy. That was suspicious to them. Not that that necessarily means, oh, guilty. It's certainly a red flag. He told police how Kay had complained of chest pains the previous night. So he was linking them to her purported history of diabetes and heart disease. He even recounted attempting to draw blood from her the night before, before saying he intended to send the blood for testing the next day. So what he was saying is she was having chest pain last night. So I, I happened to have a syringe and all of the equipment that I need to draw blood at my house. And so I just went ahead and was going to go ahead and draw blood because, you know, I do that all the time when I'm at home. And I just like to keep, you know, a, a, some spare equipment for drawing blood. But then when I tried to draw blood, I just wasn't able to. I was unsuccessful. You know, I tried, failed, and then just decided, okay. So if, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, Kelly, if I had equipment at my house to be able to draw blood, it, I would probably do that because it's something I'm comfortable doing. And then it, so if I, I feel like if I were going to try to draw blood from somebody, I probably would be able to do it. Because if, if you can't do it, you're just not going to keep that equipment. Or why in the world would anybody do that? I don't care if you're a doctor or whoever. Why would you have equipment to be able to draw blood at your house? Yeah. I'm trying not to laugh. Because it's sorry. so ridiculous. Yeah. Because <laughs> it is. And we also have the benefit of 2020 and, and hearing how, you know, how this plays out. I'm just like, she had chest pain and you decided... You wanted to draw blood. You didn't call 911. Mm -hmm. You didn't recommend her taking an aspirin. You know, it's just, it's so crazy. I don't know why I, when I was listening to this story, I was just poking holes into the things that 
this doctor was saying. And I don't know if it's just because, you know, I had the detective information or is it because of my background in healthcare? But I was just like, wow, I could have come up with better lies. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I always try to think, you know, like, I always feel like it's unfair, you know, to look at someone's actions who've who've been through something like this and just pick it apart. And so I try not to do that. I try to just think, you know, I guess I don't know what in the world. I, who knows? Maybe I do things all the time that if somebody were to look look at those actions, they would just be like, you you would have not done that. That's not true. You didn't really do that. You know, so I tried, but it, it is hard to imagine that your wife is having chest pain. You're a, you're a doctor and your wife is having chest mm-hmm. pain. And, and so much so that you're, you're so concerned that you're going to draw blood because what, you're going to check her troponin level? What are you doing? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, why are you drawing her right. blood? I mean. It, <laughs> you you want to get an EKG, right? What? I mean, it, it just, it, so maybe somebody, some people would say, well, he was a pathologist. He's not an emergency room doctor. He's not used to, you know, working in acute care. He's maybe doesn't think the way people working in acute care and ER would would think like of what you would do the second somebody walks in having chest pain, the, those EKG, getting troponins and the, those things that we do. But that all that aside, the idea of drawing blood at, at your house and thinking like sending it off the next morning as if that blood's not going to hemolyze by, by the next day. I know. I mean, the bl- blood yeah. hemolyzes within... 30 minutes of me just pull, drawing it out of a patient and getting it to the lab. I, how many times a lab will call and say, the blood, he, you know, that sample hemolyzed and you're just so frustrating because you're just like, that was a good sample. I know it was out. The thought of like drawing blood out of someone's, it's not that it isn't possible. I mean, people draw blood at home. Home health nurses, they do this all the time. I'm, I'm not saying that that's not possible. It's just that to do that the night before looking for cardiac enzymes doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And then you're going to send it off the next day. None of that makes any sense. But like you said, we do have the benefit of hindsight. So we'll just keep pushing on in this crazy story. Another thing that happened, the police were just like, hey, where's that syringe? You know, you said you drew blood. Where's the syringe and the needle? You know, where's the equipment that you used? Oh, well, I threw it away. Okay, where's the garbage? Well, I threw the garbage bag into a dumpster down the street. So again, the behavior is just a little bit... That is so weird. Odd. <laughs> Your wife is having chest pain. You put you quote unquote draw blood. You take the syringe, you throw it in the trash, and what and you leave your house with your kids to take the bag down the the street. Well, even if he because he okay, did, he did. was gone, you know, the next morning when when she died. So even if as he was leaving for work the next day, that morning, took the garbage with him. That's awfully convenient. And and the thing that is really, it, it kind of like grosses me out or there's, I don't even, like, it makes my skin crawl. Like, this is one thing that bugs the crap out of me is the idea of putting a used needle in a garbage can. <laughs> I'm just like, what healthcare person would do that? I know. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, I would think that they would take it to work and put it in a sharps a, container. There's, um, there's no way. A sharps container. Yeah, at least put and it. And I'm like, yeah, a, they had that in the 90s. Yeah. They had sharp containers in the 90s. Maybe he is just like, 
it's not that big of a deal. I know my wife's blood's not going to contaminate someone if there's accidental, you know, stick somewhere down the line. So I don't want to have to worry about trying to find somewhere to dispose of this and put it in the garbage. And I'm just going to take the garbage off the next morning at, conveniently. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything, but it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. So the police decide to dig a little bit deeper, unsurprisingly, and they did unveil some inconsistencies in his narrative. Records showed no evidence of Kay having either diabetes or heart issues said that there's another like wouldn't you think that that would have been looked into he needed to come up with a better story (laughs) it's as if he just thought i'll just i'll say this and i'm a doctor i'm a well-respected doctor and they will just believe me and no one's ever going to question it that's what i'm thinking yeah so an autopsy revealed there were two puncture marks on her arm which could align with Dr. Cyber's claim of a blood draw, but raised unsettling, obviously, possibilities of this of an injection uh, that could have been that could have happened of some sort of uh, lethal substance, and that's what they were really concerned about. It's interesting that he would have said that he failed the blood the blood draw because I think he knew they were going to find the two puncture, and so there, mm-hmm. it, you know, for him to say. Oh, I tried a couple of times and that would explain, you know, why. And then I just couldn't get it. So he, I mean, he knows as a, as a medical examiner that if they do an autopsy, they're going to find those puncture. So he already had that kind of in his, you know, back pocket of, of an excuse of why those would be there. There were no signs of heart disease present when they did the autopsy. No indications that she had any history of diabetes or heart disease, even though like we said, he did tell investigators that she did. Toxicology tests were commissioned, but the results were compromised because he did have her body sent directly to the funeral home. And they started, they did the embalming process before the police were able to get out ahead of it and, you know, have the autopsy done. So because that process already kind of got going back then at that time, that embalming the embalming fluid would interfere with the tissues and they would they were not able to separate that out and and test those tissues. So that was a problem and that's exa- I'm sure exactly what he knew was going to happen and 
it seems as though, you know, that's awfully convenient for someone. I think it's like bizarre, though, that he also had a funeral home set up to contact so and reach out so quickly. Because if you're really distraught, you're not thinking of those. I mean, he is a medical examiner. I, I guess he probably would already kind of know who it would kind of be like if, you know, we're, you know, we're in healthcare, we work at a hospital. I know what hospital I would go to and to tell any of my family to go to right away. Yeah. And when you're in your fifties, most people don't think of, okay, if something happens, I want to go to this funeral place and they don't have their funeral or their plans or, you know, for when they do die set up, they don't think of it at that age. And so that's weird. I'm surprised that there wasn't someone else involved in the, you know, the the initial call. I mean, she was pronounced dead there at her house. So there was no one else involved in the decision making. Wouldn't you think that, that the paramedics would show up and take her to the hospital? Even if she's dead, wouldn't that be the, the natural thing to do would be to take take them to the hospital or no? I fortunately do not have have this experience and don't know. But my thinking also is that could be a possibility. And I thought when someone died in a home, they called a coroner. Which would certainly not need to be him. It would not need to be a close family member like that. That that would never be appropriate. So yeah, the whole thing is just very, very strange the the way it happened. But evidence definitely mounted against Dr. Cybers when the investigative team discovered that there were frequent calls made to a former lab technician that he, you know, he, he used to work with, including two on the day of Kay's death. So they're, they're looking through his, they actually were looking through his uh, phone records because he said that he called her multiple times and they were just trying to corroborate that. And when they did, they saw something like 140 calls to the same number. And they were just like, that's a kind of odd list looking into that. Who is this person? Oh, it's this woman who used to work at the lab where he works. And that's strange that he would have, you know, this person that he talks to on such a, you know, frequent basis, and then happened to call that same person two times the morning that she died. So the nature of their relationship was was soon revealed, they were involved in an extramarital affair. So Science, in the meantime, was going to offer a breakthrough. So advance in toxicology tests detected heightened potassium levels in case eye fluid. So they were able to draw eye fluid out, even though the embalming process was kind of interfering with everything else. They pulled off fluid from her eyes and tested that, and it indicated that she did have excessive quantities of potassium, which, of course, as we know, can stop your heart. Potassium is something that I, in doing so many of these stories where healthcare professionals, for some reason, intentionally try to kill someone, potassium is one of the things that they will use, potassium chloride. And it's been used in various ways. It's one of the first things that they're going to look for. But the defense said that, you know, the body naturally has potassium, uh, you know, it naturally contains potassium. And potassium is also in your red blood cells. And after you die, it doesn't take long for your red blood cells to start breaking down. And the potassium that's in your red blood cells is released and it increases the amount of potassium that's in the body from what it would have been before. 
When I read that, that made perfect sense to me. I would have never thought of it before, but that defense attorney did his homework. (laughs) So yeah, Yeah. I, I, I was like, wow, that is right. And the prosecutor was like, the prosecutor was the one that explained it. And, you know, the judge said, no, it's, you can't use this. You cannot use this particular, you know, the, the potassium level as evidence for murder because it would not be reliable. So here they are. Embalming fluid has interfered with them being able to test any other tissues. But time is ticking by. And as I said at the beginning, like a decade went by during this whole process and they continued to investigate. They kept pushing forward, the investigators did. And science progresses all the time. They're always finding new ways of doing things. And they did discover a way to that to be able to test the tissues and they saved those. They were they they did save the tissues, even though the you know the embalming in, interfered. And so they were able to test the tissues and break down the tissues to a molecular level. And when they did that, they were able to test for paralyzing drugs. And when they did that test, they detected lethal quantities of succinylcholine, which I don't know if you guys that have been listening for a while, you probably, I know I've done several stories where paralytic drugs, you know, were involved. You may remember the Redonda Vaught story from several years ago, where she accidentally gave a paralytic to a patient. And you, if you do, you probably remember me saying that this would be an absolutely horrific death to die, to die if you only had a paralytic like this in your system. To, to inject someone with just a paralytic on purpose and allow them to die, to me, is just absolutely sadistic. Because you, you as a healthcare person, you know you know what's going to happen. You know how horrific and torturous, what a terrible, terrible death that would be. I just think it's it's just horrible. Also, as a physician, he would have access to this, and prosecutors knew that, and they figured that his motive was wanting to avoid a pricey divorce and to be able to be with the woman that he's been having an affair with. Tales old as time, right? So now fast forward to February of 1997, and Dr. Cybers is now retired. He did marry his former mistress, but now he's facing an arrest warrant because the police have just, like a dog with a bone, refused to give up. And they just kept pushing and kept pushing and kept pushing until they got the evidence that they needed. After a brief period of on electronic monitoring, they had a trial and he was convicted in January of 2000. He was also sentenced to life in prison for the murder of his wife, Kay Sivers. And he actually died on April 19th in 2014, uh, 2014 from lung cancer. So that is the story of Dr. William Sivers. Something else, huh? It is. And the other thing that struck me was how his children said they thought that the marriage was happy. And that when they interviewed the other woman, that she strongly felt that he wasn't capable of murder. That's scary. I think sometimes people who are really close to someone, it's so hard for them to accept. It's easy to kind of have blinders on when you're in a relationship and you you know you love someone so much and you just can't imagine them doing something like that. 
the same way that I can sit here and BS my way through some of these details and and try to play devil's ad- advocate, I you, you you imagine someone who has an incentive to really not want to believe that their father or that their significant other did something like this. You can just about convince yourself of anything. And I think that that happens sometimes in these cases. And he was able to influence them. I'm sure. I'm sure. On his side too, you know. So it's crazy you think you know somebody, but then to find out later on they're not the person you thought they were. I don't know that that his family ever believed that he did it. I think that they, uh, you know, thought that it was an injustice that he was convicted and that he had to, you know, spend the rest of his life in prison. I feel bad for them, but I just think that with the, all of the evidence that's there, there there's just no there's just no doubt that you know that this is what happened. It's kind of all laid out there in black and white. It's kind of hard not to see it really for me. Mhm. Yeah. And it's just weird that he had this like really amazing career. I know. I it's it's hard to understand how people can throw everything away. Just throw everything away. Inflict pain on their own children by taking away their children's parent, whichever because it, because it can be men or women have do, have done this sort of thing. And I mean, think about someone whose children love him so much that they believe he did not do this. Yeah. The fact that they they love him that much, but he would do something so horrible, so hurtful, so damaging forever for the rest of their lives, their whole lives are changed and have this huge gaping hole because of this. It's I I can never I will never understand it. I'll never understand how people can do something like this. So in February of 2003, an appeals court reversed Dr. Cyber's conviction. They said that evidence about the poison was based on testing that was too new to be accepted science at the time. So the court ordered a new trial. But instead, Dr. Cybers decided to go ahead and plead guilty to manslaughter in exchange for a sentence of the time that he had served, which had been two years. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. 
I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. So I guess that wraps up our our bad doctor story for this week. So I'm really excited about the story that I have for the good nurse story or the good doctor story because it's just the best feel-good story. I love these kinds of stories. You guys are going to love this one. Trust me. This was, it's just the best story. It's out of Reader's Digest. So you know it's true. No, it is true. I looked it up. I looked into it. there's a picture of them it's kind of unbelievable I mean really when when I first read it I thought I don't know if it's anyway this is possibly true there's just there's how's what's the chances that this could happen but I know isn't that crazy but yeah it's amazing how the universe works I know I love it though and there is a there's a really cool picture of both of these men on the rd.com, the Reader's Digest, from this article. So really, really neat story. So it was 5.45 a.m. in March 2011. And as pediatrician Michael Shannon drove along California's Pacific Coast Highway toward the beach, he could smell the sea. He was taking a route he knew well to meet a friend for their regular Tuesday walk. As he headed toward Dana Point Harbor, a blanket of white suddenly interrupted his vision. A semi-truck had pulled onto the road in front of him. The physician had no time to react. He said, I probably said a few expletives in my mind. I remember the wham and the sound of breaking glass, and then everything stopped. I was sitting still. So he remained conscious throughout this. And in the quiet afterwards, he said his first thought was that he was alive. He's just like, okay, I'm, a, I'm alive, even though this horrible crash just happened. The second thought is I have to get out because he could sense something burning. He said his legs and feet were wedged between the crumpled dashboard and they felt hot, but he was pinned in. He wasn't able to get out. I love this too. The paramedics got there within like two minutes. I think that's amazing. Two minutes. And the reason, yeah, the reason is those guys had worked all night long. So they were exhausted, but they were already in the truck when they got this call. So I I just feel like that's so, that's just amazing. You know, they're sitting there. It's almost like something you would see in like a TV show (laughs) because they're just wrapping up this awful, you know, night of working really hard and they're in the truck and they're just like, okay, good. We get to go in here and rest. And then bam, here's another call that comes in and okay, here we go. (laughs) And so they were able to get there within two minutes. So they get there and Chris Trokey was one of the paramedics and he immediately saw how bad this was. It was really bad. He's 30 years old. He had been on the job for eight years 
And he said this was this would have been considered a nine out of 10 in severity as far as the severity of the crash. He said the whole front end of the SUV was tucked under the body of the semi. He could see that, isn't that scary? He could see that the engine was smoldering and he said there were a small red flame uh, that was kind of like a campfire that was coming out from under it. But he knew that it would, it could possibly explode within minutes. And so he knew it was really important to get the person out of the vehicle. So he said that the man that was in the, in the car was remarkably calm. He said he wasn't freaking out. He wasn't yelling. He said he was saying, get me out of here. (laughs) Just very calmly, (laughs) get me out of here. So meanwhile, Shannon's lower extremities were getting hotter. He could feel the nylon mesh of his running shoes melting onto his toes. Oh, Oh my gosh. Isn't that... The crew acted fast. He said, someone handed me a fire extinguisher through the window, and I think I used another expletive and said, I need a hose. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) So he was given a fire hose and used it to put out the flames inside his vehicle. The firemen doused the engine fire and called for backup. They needed stronger tools to pry open the SUV. So as they waited, Trokey phoned Mission Hospital in Laguna Beach to alert the medical trauma team. After 20 minutes with the second crew's help, the Chevy Suburban was opened with the jaws of life, and Trokey put the man on a backboard and gurney within seconds. As he sat with him in the back of the ambulance with the siren blaring, he Trokey was starting to think about this person's name, Michael Shannon, and kind of, you know, running that over and over in his mind, because when he was born 30 years ago, he was premature. And he had to arrive at that same ER that they were headed to with his own panicked parents. And so he's thinking there there was a doctor there who saved his life that worked 24 seven to save his life. And so he's thinking, is there any way because he he knew that name, And he was just like, there's just no way, no way possible. So he said he didn't say anything because he wanted to focus on what was going on. You know, the thought kind of entered his head and then he was just like, not going to, not going to go there. It's not really important right now. But later on, he did start looking into it. And when he asked, do you remember me at all? You stayed with me when I was really little. Shannon had suffered a, a perforated small intestine. He had Second and third degree burns on his feet and part of a toe had to be amputated. Shards of glass were embedded in his skin. Shannon recognized Chris's name at once, although he has treated more children than he can remember. It's the ones who needed him most who stick. Yet if they passed each other on the street, neither man would have recognized the other. So at 72, he was 72 years old when this happened, Shannon had cut his hair short. And at six feet, three inches tall and 195 pounds, Chris looked nothing like the fragile baby he had once been. So the day after Shannon's surgery, Trokey and the crew from Engine 29 went to visit Shannon in the ICU. As firefighters and paramedics, they save lives as a matter of course. So they aren't, aren't you know, typically going to be going back to see their, their patients. But in this case, of course, it's different because such a, a close call. So they both still marvel at the connection. Neither Shannon nor Trokey, they said, are huge churchgoers, but each say that this feeling of having someone enter your life at a critical time and watch over you until you were well, of giving a gift without expectations and then getting it back when you need it most has given him faith in a higher power. I thought that was yeah. really nice. 
It's an amazing story. At some point later, they went to like a charity event, a fundraiser, like for cancer or something, and both of them shaved their heads. So (laughs) I just, I love this. I feel like I've, I've done other stories like this. I had actually a nurse on one time who started working as a nurse at the hospital where she was born and just, and then switched units, like just transferred into a, a different unit. And when she, after she transferred and started working there, she somehow saw the name or, or something and was just like, hey, did you by any chance work here? And then figured out that her nurse manager was a nurse that took care of her and had signed her baby book because her mom had a baby book that she Aww. had, you know, wanted all the nurses. So it kind of, that, that was a full circle, circle moment. So these kinds of things do happen. It's just they just make me smile. And I love I love ending on these kind of, you know, with these kinds of kinds of stories. They're just sort of happy. Yeah, it's kind of like that, that butterfly effect. You never know how your actions are going to ripple out. So, so true to think of it as, you know, your everything that you do, you know, do it with without any expectation of having anything in return. You just be kind just to be kind, you know, just do the right thing just to do the right thing and not don't think about anything coming back to you. But good always comes back. It always comes back around in different forms. And that's, you know, I think sometimes you see it, you get to see it, like in this particular case, they got to see it. But sometimes you don't, you don't know, you never know what resulted from that. Or you never, you never know how you are benefiting from someone else's kind reaction and how it's all, it's all connected. But I feel like there's so many different things like this, where we're connected. And it's, it's just amazing. Have you heard those stories about somebody complimenting someone about their shirt or their hair or something or just saying hi and that person that they complimented was planning on killing themselves that day or the next day? And because somebody saw them and showed them you're not invisible and you're valued, they saved that person's life and they, you just never know who you might do that for. You don't. It makes me also think of, you know, there are times in our lives when we're really busy, we can get frustrated in different situations, especially people in their cars get so upset uh, with other people in their cars. And man, some of the things that people can do. But I feel like if we could just kind of remind ourselves that everyone is going through something, everyone has their crap that they're going through. You just don't know. And even if they're being a jerk, just let them let them be a jerk. You don't always have to mm-hmm. retaliate against everyone, even if you feel justified. And I think that's usually people just, are, they feel justified in being angry because someone did something they shouldn't have done and or they're being a jerk. And it's never a good outcome when we choose to retaliate against situations like that. So, well, well for me, like say my, my husband who is not in healthcare, he'll get frustrated. Someone else speed by, you know, and be driving crazy. And, and I'll, d- I'll just say, well, you know what? You never know. They may have diarrhea <laughs> <laughs> to get to a bathroom. <gasps> or they got the news that their child fell and, and is hurt at school. You, you never know why someone is doing something. So, yeah, you have to let people do what they got to do to get through the day and just not take it personally or 
try not to judge. I think it's hu- it's only human nature to judge, but yeah, try not to judge and be kind and, and supportive. I see somebody in a hurry. I move out of the way. You never know why they're in a mm-hmm. hurry. They could have heard their, you know, their father is in the ER having a stroke. You know, these are the things I, I, maybe I think, cause I'm a nurse and I know these things happen, but that's kind of the way I try to view the world and people and, and so forth. And I think that as you work, as you work as a nurse too, over the years, you, I think when you're a new nurse and stuff, when people say, you know, when people, patients get mad at you or, or snap at you or whatever, you take it personally and think, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? But as you work and you learn over time that patients react a certain way, it has a lot of the time it has nothing to do Mm -hmm. with you or your practice. It has to do where they are in that situation, their mind, their mind frame, the past that they're dealing with or the present. And you learn to, I guess, let it roll off you or you, you become more understanding. I don't know what it is. I have, I work with a lot of patients with brain issues like Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis. You know, they're tired, they're grumpy, um, they're frustrated. Um, maybe they're having a hard time adjusting their diagnosis. And so when they snap at me and yell at me, I don't really react. I just listen. And then, you know, sometimes they'll apologize and I'll just say, well, that's okay. I knew that was your brain talking, not you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not everyone is going to apologize. And uh, sometimes people are really hard to love or really hard to care for because they make it so difficult with the way that they would talk to you sometimes. Uh, it's just yeah, you know, it's so hard not to respond to jabs and insults and insinuate, you know, when they're insinuating that you're not doing your job right, you want to correct them or you want to kind of put them in their place. It's never the right thing to do. It's never the right thing to do to snap back, you know, at, at, a, at a patient. It's not going to help anything. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean I, I do think that there's a time and a place sometimes like in a hospital setting, if a patient is really upset because you took too long getting them their Sprite and... Mm-hmm. You were in the next door with a patient that was coding and you're having to prioritize and, you know, people don't always understand that. I think that there's nothing wrong with educating people on the dynamics of a hospital and how we have to triage situations. We have to prioritize situations. I will try to get you, I'm going to try to be in here as quickly as possible. But if I'm not, just to understand that it's only because I have somewhere else that at that moment is just more important to be doing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying something like that, you know. I agree. I uh, I think it's a, it's an opportunity for educating people about our complex health system. And I've had, you know, patients get frustrated with me because things didn't play out well. You know, whether that's their phone call was answered quickly enough or they got into their MRI within whatever time they kind of expected. And I, you know, I've always found that if I'm honest, I acknowledge that, yeah, they're right, that such and such is not, you know, the intention of how we like to take care of our patients. But if I acknowledge and I'm really honest, it really changes the tone and they become more understanding, you know, of what's going on and that you're a human and you can only work 
so many hours in a day. And even though healthcare does is 24 seven. Yep. Sure is. Well, I guess that wraps it up for this episode of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Kelly, remind everybody where they can find your book. Sure. So my book you can find on Amazon. It's After the Crash, How to Keep Your Job, Stay in School, and Live Life After a Brain Injury. And it's also on Audible. Nice. I love it. And you guys, yeah, that's awesome. And you guys know that you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And if you would like to hear these episodes ad-free and get them several days early the week before, you can become a Patreon member. And there's also some other little things we're putting in there as well. A new podcast called Break Room Conversations. It's going to be coming out soon. That's only going to be for our Patreon subscribers. So go and check that out. And of course, before I leave, I have to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Thank you.